Good morning. I know what you're thinking. Is that a young Pastor Ed? No, I'm, I'm not that good looking, I promise. When I was uh, growing up, one of my favorite vacations that we took, it's funny that you, my parents are here. Um, it's fun, uh, one of my favorite vacations that we took was to Florida, to my grandparents' condo, and my grandparents are here. So you're all included in this story, just wanna let you know. Not only did Florida have warm weather, sandy beaches, and great seafood, but it had this little place that we discovered when we were down there. It's called Disney World. I'm not sure if you're familiar. <laughs> it's really fun. I don't know if you know anything about Disney World in the 2000s, early 2000s, mid to late 2000s, that's more accurate. Uh, but it had a, a lot of varied locations in the theme park. I think it's still like this. I haven't been there in a while. But uh, one of the themes in the theme park was uh, safari, safari theme. It a lot of fun safari rides. And I, I can't remember the name of this specific ride, but there was a, a safari-themed exhibit that my parents uh, told me about the first few days we were there at Disney World. They said, hey, Jake, we're going to go on this safari ride. Naturally, being a curious, intellectual young child, uh, I asked, well, what's this ride like? My family then proceeded to engage in a diabolical scheme to convince me that this safari ride was a dangerous adventure that had fierce animals that could kill me. <laughs> These are the people who raised me. I just want to let you know. <laughs> My parents went so far as to say, Jake, not everyone makes it back from this ride. <laughs> so terrified, I stood in that line with my family, perplexed at why, would we, why we would ever go on this ride. And there was other people there. I'm like, do you know? Do you know what you're in line for? I imagined the wild animals we would have to face and strategized not to sit in the window seat and instead I put my sister over there because she's an adequate sacrifice. <laughs> so I did all that I could to muster up the bravery I needed to endure this experience. Then the boat pulled up, we took our seats, and then the ride started. Slowly, I realized that as we went along, the animals that started to pass by were, were all fake. The boat was built into a track under the water. It wasn't an actual boat. And suddenly, that wilderness that I was so afraid of wasn't so wild anymore. I felt ridiculous when I realized that my fear of the ride caused me to forget who owned and operated the ride. When I remembered that it was Disney's safari ride, I knew the nature of the wilderness. In my mind, it was rendered harmless. Good morning, Resurrection, and welcome to part two of our series in our 40-day journey with Jesus through the season of Lent. Last week, Brian introduced us to Matthew 4, 1 through 11, and emphasized the fasting of Christ in his 40-day wandering in the wilderness. Encouraging us to fast, Pastor Brian went on to make the point that if a transformed character costs you temporal comfort, the price is right. Today we continue our study of Jesus' wilderness temptation and we will maintain our mission to examine Christ's character in Matthew 4 with the goal of emulating him. In short, as we look at verse 1 of Matthew 4 today, we will ask ourselves, how does this text help me be more like Jesus? 
Today, we're going to focus on the very beginning of the 40-day journey and what I've determined is a deceptively dense first verse of our chapter. As we look into Jesus' experience, I think the image of my traumatic safari ride proves a useful comparison. As we learn about how Jesus is led up into the wilderness, we most importantly see who it is that's leading him into the wilderness. It is undoubtedly true that a portion of Christ's experience here emulates our own. And just as the same spirit that led Christ into the wilderness strengthened him in the wilderness, so too the spirit will act in our own wilderness. In other words, only when I realized who owned and designed the safari ride at Disney was the wilderness of the safari robbed of its power. The main point I want to focus on today is simple. And it's simple for a reason, because I'm going to approach it from several different directions. And this, this is it. To live by the Spirit is to be led by the Spirit. To live by the Spirit is to be led by the Spirit. Now, I think we're all content and, and agreed that it's good to live by the Spirit. I mean, the Word of God tells us that. But when the Spirit takes control of your life and seeks to lead you against your desires, to lead you to face them in the wilderness, we trust a little less and we lean a little more on our own understanding. And I pray that this wouldn't be so with us. May we who claim the privilege of walking by the Spirit trust when he leads us into the wild. Before we continue, let's go ahead and read our passage for today. I bet you can't do it in one breath. Ready? Matthew 4.1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Whew. That was a long one. Not the shortest passage I've ever preached on, actually. But since our uh, uh, series in the season of Lent is focusing on the entirety of Jesus' wilderness wandering, let's go ahead and refamiliarize ourselves with the entire story. Matthew 4, 1 through 11 says this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, blessed. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now as good Bible scholars, I know you all are good Bible scholars. There's uh, something in verse one that should be pointing us in a particular direction. It compels us to understand that chapter headings can sometimes be a little unhelpful. It's the very first word of our passage, then. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
This word in the Greek is an adverb of subsequent time. It's telling us that the story doesn't start here, it continues here. It assumes details already being covered thus far in the story. So let's do a little more work in setting the stage for our chapter. Now, if you remember from last week, Brian did remind us a little bit about how chapter three ended, and we're gonna cover that as well. Matthew 3, 16 and 17 say this, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Here at the end of Matthew 3, we're greeted with powerful language and imagery that all serves to inaugurate Jesus' ministry. In being baptized by John, Jesus identifies himself with sinners, the same sinners for whom he would die. As the spirit descended from heaven in the form of a dove, the authentication of Jesus' ministry is validated in the presence of all of history. And the messianic prophecy of Isaiah 11:2 is fulfilled. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Then the voice of God affirms Christ's sonship, thus declaring the qualifications of Christ to carry out what he was called to do. And then lastly, as we, as we approach the final verse of chapter three, we see the full Godhead on display, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No clearer sign could have been given that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the anointed one. So we have this rich tapestry of images. Heaven itself tearing open, the voice of God resonating throughout all of time, talking about the fulfillment of the long-awaited messianic hope. Then we come to these first few words of chapter four. And honestly, they're not that surprising, right? Then Jesus was led up by the spirit. That's consistent. This insane display of his messiahship. It makes sense that the next thing that the spirit would do was lead him somewhere. That same spirit who was visibly descended in power was with the incarnate Christ leading him. As we think about the life of Christ, it certainly isn't difficult to point out how would when the Spirit led him and strengthened him and ministered to him. But the narrative doesn't jump into his ministry yet. It would have made sense, right? Right after this whole inaugural display of Christ's Messiahship, he would just start his ministry, begin his miracles. No, it, it answers a looming question, where was the Spirit leading him? And the answer is one that's different than we expect. The Spirit did not lead him to begin his ministry, not yet. It, uh, it didn't lead him up to the palace of the Roman emperor where Jesus would, with his righteous right hand, smite the power of Roman oppression. The Spirit did not lead him to the Pharisees where he'd be enrobed with the finest garments and given the highest seat of honor and would become the prophet that the Jews anticipated. No, the, the Spirit led him somewhere else. Matthew 4.1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness 
to be tempted by the devil. In 2019, my wife and I had the privilege of uh, going on a study tour of Israel. Early on in our trip, we had the opportunity to visit a place known as Medaba, where ancient Mount Nebo rises above the western side of the Jordan. It's recorded in scripture, this is the view from the mountain, it's recorded in scripture that this is where Moses stood as he glanced into the promised land he would never enter. I thought this would be a helpful way to understand what exactly Jesus was being led up into. It's common among scholars that Jesus' wilderness wanderings took place somewhere west of Jericho. At the time, Jesus was down in the Jordan. Remember, he was just baptized by John in the Jordan. And if you were to head west from there, or east, any direction, you would invariably go up, which is why it's talking about the Spirit leading him up into the wilderness. You can tell the elevation difference. This is on top of the mountain, and down there is the Jordan Valley. From Mount Nebo, you can see Jericho and the western wilderness beyond it. This is a picture I tried to get of Jericho. You can see it in the distance. What I want us to capture from this picture and from both of these pictures is the understanding that where Jesus went was desolate, barren, and even desert-like. Hills were covered in rocks. The heat curated a powerful thirst. And on the only other living things Jesus would encounter or wild animals. But Jesus' temptation, the test he would endure, was more than a physical trial. In fact, throughout Scripture, the wilderness is considered to be a region that's viewed as the haunt of evil powers, a place in which the enemy has dominion. It was the raw, visceral, and hardened nature. And here the enemy thrived. Here in this environment, Jesus would endure temptation at the hands of the devil himself, and the devil was on his home turf. Now, at this point in the text, you might be wondering, why? Why did Jesus have to go into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? What is the point of this? Why is this the very next thing we read after his amazing inaugural image, the, the tapestry that was woven at the end of Matthew 3. These are the questions that we're going to address throughout the series. But I think we need to answer some of them if we're going to understand how we emulate Christ's faithfulness in Matthew 4.1. But actually, I think it'd be helpful if we jumped over to Mark's account of this story for a moment. Mark, Matthew, and Luke are each considered the synoptic gospels. That's just a, a fancy way to say they record the same events from different perspectives. Both Mark and Luke have this story of Jesus' temptation, but Mark uses an interesting word to describe Jesus' experience. This is in Mark 1, verse 12. Now, like Matthew, Mark records the baptism of Jesus in this compelling imagery of the beginning of his ministry, and then we read Mark 1, 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Mark's words are a little more aggressive. Instead of let up, that was a little bit easier for us to understand. But now imagine a spirit like pushing, pushing Jesus. 
The word translated as drove him out is actually the same word Mark would use to describe how Jesus deals with demons in his ministry. Its meaning is to forcefully drive out, to expel or to send away. But I, I think there's a more important observation we can make about this urgency. I don't think Mark's trying to be dramatic. I think there's a spirit is described as driving him out. And I think there are two reasons behind the spirit's compelling, pushing Jesus into the wilderness. And both are gonna be essential for us to understand Matthew 4.1. The first reason that the spirit compelled Jesus was because of the significance of fulfilling his messianic work. This was included, Matthew 4, the temptation, this was included in the fulfillment of his messianic work, in his role as our savior. The urgency of Mark's words are to convey that there was no other action that Christ could have taken next than to be brought into the wilderness. Why? Because the real nature of Jesus' ministry was about to be revealed to Jesus. I'll explain that. Matthew 3, we saw the heavens tear open, right? The very voice of God erupted through the cosmos and the power of his declaration rattled the foundations of hell itself. And so, hell responded. In the words of R. Kent Hughes, heaven had opened, now hell opened. Work. The work the Spirit himself led him into was to endure the wilderness, the demonic haunts of hardened earth that served as the battlefield that would exemplify the whole of Jesus' life. We, we must understand that the Spirit was not surprised by the outcry of hell. In fact, the Spirit planned on it. Planned on the outcry of hell. These temptations would become the means by which Christ was prepared for the life he was called to live. These temptations would become the means by which Christ was prepared for the life he was called to live. Commentator Michael Green says, these temptations were messianic. In other words, these temptations would further validate that Christ was the anointed one, the son that God claimed that he was. And I think we see the messianic nature of these temptations in two ways. First, the temptations would be messianic because they're emblematic of Christ's life. It's kind of what I was just saying a second ago. It was the ambition of the Godhead to reveal the nature of Jesus' existence. It would be one that would endure the onslaught. Jesus' life would endure the onslaught of the enemy's effort. It would be a life that revealed to us that Christ's sonship didn't prevent him from suffering, but destined him for suffering. In the words of the author of Hebrews, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Hebrews 5.8. And through that suffering, we know Christ was made perfect. As Christ walked into the wilderness, he previewed the agenda of his life, his role as Messiah. The second way that the temptations are messianic is because they would symbolize the fulfillment of something we could never do. They symbolized the fulfillment of something we could never do. Part of Christ's role was that he would live as the perfect human, 
and function as the perfect sacrifice, paving the way to heaven by his blood. This story looks back on the entirety of the history of God's people, up to and including the cross. Commentator R. Kent Hughes identifies that this story is actually reminiscent of Eden. Christ was brought out into a desolate garden in the wilderness, encountered a resplendent devil who tempted him into disobedience. Now that sounds familiar, right? And yet what he did, Adam and Eve could not. He endured. Christ's temptation would reflect Israel's wilderness wanderings, but instead of succumbing to the desires of the flesh like Israel did, Christ would endure. Our story even ends with Jesus being administered to by angels, just like he would in the Garden of Gethsemane while staring down the barrel of the cross. So as we think about this story, about the spirit leading Jesus into the enemy's territory to face him head on, we have to ask, what did this achieve? What, what actually happened? If the enemy didn't win, how did God win? In the popular uh, cult classic movie, The Princess Bride, uh, the dread pirate Roberts, uh, who, whom the audience knows as Wesley, the main character, comes face to face with a man named Vizzini and his two henchmen who have stolen Princess Buttercup. Okay, you, <laughs> you on track with the story so far? I would have my wife come up and recite it from memory because she can, but uh, I'm not going to ever do that. Vizzini's plan was to kill the princess and blame it on a neighboring nation, thus prompting a war. Any, to, to save the princess, Wesley has to come and confront each of these henchmen one-on-one. -on -one. Now, defeating each of them handily, Wesley eventually reaches the, the leader, Vizzini, who, who still has the princess as his hostage. But instead of continuing to run, Vizzini confronts Wesley and challenges him to a battle of wits. It's a pretty popular scene in the movie. Wesley agrees and then gives the rules for the challenge. Behind his back, Wesley poisons one of two cups of wine, and Vizzini has to pick the correct cup to drink so as to not die. After picking one of the two cups, Wesley would then drink the other one. After a prolonged display of Vizzini's logic for choosing which cup he would drink, which provoked Wesley to comment, truly, you have a dizzy, dizzying intellect. Uh, Vizzini distracts Wesley. He's like, hey, what's over there? And he swaps the cups. He then chooses the cup closest to him and drinks from it. Wesley says he's consumed the poison. But Vizzini believes he's fooled Wesley because he swapped the cups. He's like, no, I swapped the cups and I drank from yours. It isn't until v Vizzini keels over dead that Wesley discloses he poisoned both cups and had an immunity to the poison. Inconceivable. <laughs> well done. I like that. <laughs> In short, let me get to the point of the illustration, okay? In short, what we realize about the Battle of Wits was that it was over before it had even started. Wesley came into that battle with a pre-existing immunity to the Battle of Wits with Fizzini. When Jesus entered the wilderness, Satan saw an opportunity. He saw a chance to undo his opposition by engaging him in a battle of wits. 
And if we knew anything about the character of Vicini, we know that he is pretty full of himself, right? Plato, Socrates, they're, they're stupid. Remember that? I think that's the line. Isn't that the line? Yeah. Similarly, the enemy thought, he's on my turf now. He doesn't have a chance. But when we realized that sent Christ into the wilderness, we learned that the Spirit had planned for this all along. Like Wesley, the Spirit set the rules for the battle of wits. It wasn't Satan who led Jesus into the wilderness, it was the Spirit. The enemy played right into the hand of God. When Jesus was tempted by the enemy, he was prepared for a life that would lead to Satan's defeat. Satan, in his foolishness, believed himself immune to God's sovereignty from Wesley's poison, so to speak. But little did he know that his efforts would prepare Christ for the ultimate victory he would achieve. This describes the entire experience of Christ's cross, does it not? Satan, rejoicing that he was the victor of the battle of wits, keels over at the foot of the cross. Satan's weapon became the means for our redemption. Christ was compelled into the wilderness because it was a necessary part of his messiahship. He responded to his calling and was willing to endure the wilderness to ensure that the will of God was accomplished through him. In short, Jesus knew that to live by the Spirit is to be led by the Spirit. The Spirit led him where he needed to go to fulfill his appointed role, and that same Spirit would see him through to the cross. Part of trusting the Spirit is knowing that he will bring us where he needs us. Our calling can only ever be fulfilled and sustained by our walking in the Spirit. All right, so that's all under the heading of the wilderness wanderings served to firm Christ's messiahship. Now, this is the second reason that the Spirit had to push Jesus into the wilderness, right? It had to drive him out. The second reason the Spirit compelled Jesus was because in the wilderness, what he was going to endure would be profoundly difficult. Any, any good Bible teaching church should tell you, Christ had two natures. It is a doctrine known as the duality of Christ. In short, he was fully God and fully man. It was essential that he be both so that when he was sacrificed on the cross, he could both stand in our place as our representative, fully man, and compensate for our sin as one who was sinless, fully God. With that in mind, we cannot assume that Jesus, in enduring the full extent of the enemy's work in the wilderness, had no fear or no doubt or no need for a comforter. In the 40 days, I imagine that being fully human, he wondered why do I have to endure this? But in the end, he didn't, it, it didn't matter because he knew who led him into the wilderness. My fear when I was on the safari ride was dissolved when I know, when I figured out who owns it and who runs it. Jim Cohn, a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia, 
has studied the physical and neurological impact of the presence of a loved one in a stressful situation. When a person was exposed to stressful input, their physical response soared when they were alone. But when a loved one held onto their hand, the physical stress responses were negligible. In the words of Jim Cohn, the presence of another person threw up this force field that protected her from the threat of the stressful input. It made her feel on some level as if it wasn't really a threat at all. When the Spirit is the one who is leading us, we can trust that he will give us what we need to endure. His is the hand that holds ours when he leads us into the wilderness. The Spirit is called the Comforter because when we follow his leading, where he brings us will necessitate that we call on him for comfort. Jesus knew this. So much so that even amongst the wooded groves of Gethsemane, the Savior would be found praying, pleading for his life, that the Spirit would not lead him into this wilderness to endure a cross that none other could. And yet, despite that desire, the desires of the flesh, he trusted and prayed, not my will, but yours be done. This is our prayer in the wilderness. As we see the Spirit leading Christ into temptation, our theology has to be reshaped. We can know with absolute certainty that the Spirit will call us to endure the wilderness. If we are to be like Jesus and to share in his sufferings, we shouldn't be surprised when we are led into suffering. In other words, we shouldn't be surprised that when we live by the Spirit, we will be led by the Spirit. We have to ask ourselves, are you willing to trust the Spirit? Or do you only trust him when he leads you into your comfort? I think we're all prone to spiritual atrophy when our comforts are at stake. So what if the Spirit is leading you into a wilderness he's planned for you? These should be hard questions but I don't want you to be afraid. Because we, as we see here, and as we'll see in Galatians 5, the same spirit that calls us into the wilderness empowers us in the wilderness. And this can only happen if we're walking by the spirit, living by the spirit. So before we wrap up this morning, I think it would be helpful to look at Paul's letter to the Galatians, specifically the second half of chapter five. Here we're not only going to see that we are called to walk by the Spirit, but we're shown what a Spirit-driven life looks like. So if you have your Bible, Galatians chapter five, we're gonna start at verse 16. Now, we're towards the end of the book, so it's important to set the stage a little bit. Paul has actually dedicated a majority of this letter to confronting a counterfeit gospel. And he says this in his opening rebuke. Galatians 1, 6 through 7 says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
Central in the counterfeit gospel is the attempt of false teachers to insist on the circumcision for all believers. That's a major theme in this letter. The idea was that these false teachers wanted to reintroduce Jewish ideology and obedience to the old covenant into the new covenant community, which is a problem. But why, why were they doing this? Why did they want to do this? Well, Galatians 6.12 actually provides us a compelling reason. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. We see clearly that the false teachers in Galatia wanted to walk by the Spirit. They wanted to live by the Spirit without being led by it. Because the second it became inconvenient, let's, let's come up with something different so we won't be persecuted. Let's come up with something different so we'll avoid that wilderness. And with all this in mind, let's read Galatians 5, 16 through 26. But I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let me say that again. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. I really wanna focus on the first few verses here. Paul prescribes the solution for a church that's subject to the temptation of taking the easy way out. <clears throat> knowing their situation and knowing that the false teachers claim to have a way to ease the weight of the wilderness, Paul drops a profound imperative, walk. Walk by the Spirit. Has anyone uh, ever seen a behind the scenes look at claymation? how claymation's done. It's fascinating to see, especially when it's sped up. Um, this clip is from Justin Rosh. The clip is a behind the scenes look at Paranorman, released in 2012, and it reveals just how meticulous a claymation artist must be to mimic fluidic motion. It, it's sped up, and you can um, see those results. Every, mo every movement and every step is guided by the claymation artist. Norman wouldn't be able to move without his artist. Paul's word walk here is a very strong verb. When he says walk by the Spirit, it's uh, in the original language, it's a present imperative, which means that it's a command that carries with it the force of constant relevance. 
When Paul says, walk by the Spirit, he's saying, in every step that you take from this point onward, may that step be determined by the Spirit. My point is, I want us to have the kind of dependence on the Spirit that a claymation figure has on its artist. Paul proceeds to outline the benefits of a life lived in this way, a life lived by the Spirit. And I think it's very relevant if we are to strive toward emulating Christ in his wilderness experience. Let's read uh, 5, 16 uh, and 17 again. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. We would be fooling ourselves if we believe Christ didn't struggle in the wilderness. If he did not feel the fullness of sin, the fullness of the desires of the flesh, as is described in Galatians 5, how could he ever be our empathetic high priest? Hebrews 4.15. How could he ever be described as one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin? Same verse. So I imagine that perhaps somewhere in his 40 days, Christ had to fight off what he wanted to do. He may have wanted to bring an end to the temptations, to get back to the Jordan where he was gloriously affirmed in his role and perhaps rule from a throne of convenience. But he didn't. Instead, he endured being tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. And so we're like, okay, so how was he kept from doing the things he wanted to do? Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The word for not here is actually emphasized in the original language. It conveys the idea of never. It's no, no in the Greek, double negative, but double negatives in Greek indicate emphasis. You will never gratify the desires of the flesh. In In other words, walking by the Spirit makes it possible to never gratify your fleshly desires. Jesus strengthened in his perfect humanity by the Holy Spirit, walked by the Spirit, and never gratified his flesh. So how do we then endure in the wilderness as Jesus endured? We imitate him as he walked by the Spirit. In a claymation film, the clay figures would be lifeless if they stood still. There wouldn't be a movie to watch if the artist didn't move them after forming them. It's essential that we understand if we are to walk by the Spirit, if we trust in Him to be the force that moves us, then we shouldn't be surprised when we start moving. Nor should we be surprised when we are led into places we wouldn't otherwise go. Again, Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. To live by the Spirit means you're moving. We don't remain stagnant like clay without an artist. Instead, we trust the work of the Spirit and accept that to live by the Spirit is to be led by the Spirit. He's in control. We have lifted our hands from the wheel. We have allowed him into the driver's seat of our lives and trust where he brings us. 
even if where he brings us is the wilderness. So all we have left to ask is, well, what does a spirit-led life look like? Simple. A spirit-led life is a fruit-filled life. Galatians 5, 22 through 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. A life led by the Spirit is a life filled with unconditional love. Joy that spawns from a contentment rooted not in circumstances, but in Christ. Peace that can only come from the Prince of Peace. Patience that strives to emulate the patience Christ has towards us every day. Kindness that is slow to anger and counts others as more significant than ourselves. Goodness that flows out of a heart infatuated with a good Savior. Faithfulness that we could never attribute to our own ability or our own capacity. But to Christ in us. Gentleness like ocean, both mighty and calm, rooted and an identity founded on Christ and self-control that flows from a life that walks by the Spirit and does not gratify the desires of the flesh. If we are ever to emulate Christ, we need to trust the Holy Spirit the way he did. We need to realize that if the Spirit is at the helm, the game of wits is already won. So when the wilderness comes, we don't have to worry because we know who brought us there. We will know that the same spirit who guides us like a pillar of smoke in the light of day will, will guide us like a pillar of fire in the dark of night. Looking back, it was ridiculous that I got so afraid of the safari ride at Disney. But that's because I can, I can think back and realize now who owned and operated that ride. In the moment, and with my childlike mind, I forgot who designed it. And I think we all possess a similar capacity to forget that same spirit who designed the wilderness. The same spirit who designed the wilderness is the one who leads us and sustains us through it. The wilderness served to equip Jesus in his ministry of triumph over the enemy. The will of God was accomplished because the temptations Christ endures in Matthew 4. Similarly, we have to trust the Spirit and we have to remain in lockstep with him, knowing that where he leads us is far better than where we would end up on our own. As we respond in our worship and as we sing about asking the Lord to lead us in his love, building our lives on him and putting our trust in him, May we, like Jesus, face the wilderness knowing that he's the one who leads us into it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you so much for this morning, for the blessing it is to be led by you, no matter how inconvenient it might be. May we trust you. May our investment never be in our comfort. May the only thing we grip tightly to be the spirit and nothing else, Lord. Because you've called us to do things far beyond what we could do on our own and the only way we can accomplish them is by the spirit. The spirit you poured out when Christ ascended. So thank you. 
Thank you that your spirit is with us, that he's in this place, and he's calling us. And we wanna thank you that he calls us into the wilderness because we know he is seeking to accomplish a will far greater than our own. So may we trust when we suffer. Walk by the Spirit to live as Christ lived. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We ask that you would be magnified in our lives. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.